We're in 2 Chronicles chapter 31. And uh, this time of of, uh, biblical study this morning is not about what it's going to sound like it's about. It's about something far greater. But it's... But we're going to deal with a way to get there. And I know I'm being kind of cryptic, but let's read the, the passage, pray about it, and I'll explain. Second Chronicles chapter 31 and verse 1. <clears throat> it begins, Now when all this was finished, all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah, broke the pillars in pieces, cut down the Asherim, and pulled down the high places and the altars throughout all Judah and Benjamin as well as in Ephraim and Manasseh, until they had destroyed them all. And then all the sons of Israel returned to their cities, each to his own possession. And Hezekiah appointed the divisions of the priests and the Levites by their divisions, each according to his service, both the priests and the Levites, for burnt offerings and for peace offerings, to minister and to give thanks and to praise in the gates of the camp of the Lord. He also appointed the king's portion of his goods, For the burnt offering, namely for the morning and evening burnt offerings, and the burnt offerings for the Sabbaths, and for the new moons, and for the fixed festivals, as it is written in the law of the Lord. And he also commanded the people who lived in Jerusalem to give the portion due to the priests and to the Levites, that they might devote themselves to the law of the Lord. As soon as the order spread, the sons of Israel provided in abundance the first fruits of grain, new wine, oil, honey, and of all the produce of the field. And they brought in abundantly the tithe of all. The sons of Israel and Judah, who lived in the cities of Judah, also brought in the tithe of oxen and sheep, and the tithe of sacred gifts which were consecrated to the Lord their God, and placed them in heaps. In the third month they began to make the heaps, and finished them by the seventh month. When Hezekiah and the rulers came and saw the heaps, they blessed the Lord and His people Israel. Then Hezekiah questioned the priests and the Levites concerning the heaps. Azariah, the chief priest of the house of Zadok, said, Since the contributions began to be brought into the house of the Lord, we've had enough to eat with plenty left over, for the Lord has blessed His people, and this great quantity is left over. And then Hezekiah commanded them to prepare rooms in the house of the Lord, and they prepared them. They faithfully brought in the contributions and the tithes and the consecrated things. And and Konaniah, the Levite, was the officer in charge of them, and his brother Shimei was second. Yehiel, Azaziah, Nahat, Asahel, Yeramoth, Yotabad, Eliel, Ishmachiah, Mahat, and Benaiah were overseers under the authority of Konaniah, and Shimeiah's brother, by the appointment of King Hezekiah, and Azariah was the chief officer of the house of God. And there will be a quiz on those names in a few minutes. Korah, the son of Imna, the Levite, was keeper of the eastern gate, and, and he was over the free will offerings of God to apportion the contributions for the Lord and the most holy things. Under his authority were Eden, Miniamin, Miniamin, yeah, many of in Yeshua, Shemaiah, Amariah, and Shechaniah in the cities of the priests to distribute faithfully their portions to their brothers by divisions, whether great or small. Without regard to their genealogical enrollment, to the males from 30 years old and upward, everyone who entered the house of the Lord for his daily obligations for their work in the duties according to their divisions as well as the priests who were enrolled genealogically according to their father's households, and the Levites from 20 years old and upwards by their duties and their divisions. 
The genealogical enrollment included all their children, their wives, their sons, and their daughters for the whole assembly, for they consecrated themselves faithfully in holiness. Also for the sons of Aaron the priest who were in the pasture lands of their cities. And in each and every city there were men who were designated by name to distribute portions to every male among the priests and to everyone genealogically enrolled among the Levites. Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah. And he did what was good and right and true before the Lord his God. Every work which he began in the service of the house of God in the law and in commandment seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. Father, I thank you for the example of Hezekiah and the people of Judah. I thank you, Lord, that these things were written for us as an example of how we might live. May we, Father, not only learn from them, but be changed, even as we look into these things, by your Spirit. I pray this morning, Father, a change in us. And I ask you, Lord, in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I wasn't going to talk about this this morning. Actually, I was going to talk about the end of Hezekiah's life where he asked for 15 extra years and the fallout from those 15 extra years. Well, I was all focused on that and thinking about it. And then Jeff and I, Jeff D'Angelo, went down to a, a conference in Seattle on Thursday given by the ECFA, Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. It was a finance conference. Now I came home and Friday morning I had all the intention of getting into this story of the end of Hezekiah's life. I thought, you know, we learned a lot of interesting things at this finance church finance conference and that's all well and good, but I really wanted to set that aside and get back to the Word and focus on something more important than finances and money. And then I opened up chapter 31 on Friday morning and read through it and realized that this is exactly what God wanted us to to talk about today. One of the primary reasons people do not like to go to church or invite their friends to church is for fear the pastor is going to ask for money. It's a fear that that money is going to be talked about. Money is going to be thrown out there. The churches are always trying to get into your wallet. And there really is this sensibility out there among unchurched people that church is just about money grubbing, money digging, getting into your money to contribute to the needs of the pastor and and his starving children. But did you know in 17 out of the 38 parables of Jesus, he talks about money and possessions? Did you know that money and possessions are dealt with in the Scriptures three times more than love? Seven times more than prayer? Eight times more than faith? This is not a pastor. This is the pastor, the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, who spends an inordinate, seemingly, amount of time on money and possessions in the Scriptures. And Jesus is the one who said in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. These are the words of Christ. Now you might say, Pastor, why can't you just tell Bible studies and leave the, the money alone? Stick to the stories, man. Well, Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.17, he said, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of their riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, 
To be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Besides, forget about what Pastor Rick is supposed to do. God won't leave it alone. We've talked about money several times in this church, Rick. Yeah, we have, because it keeps coming up. And I made a promise when we very first started the bridge that I wasn't going to talk about money unless it came up in the Scriptures. As we study through and wander through the Word as we've been doing, when it comes up, I said we will deal with it. And if it's not in the next passage or in the Scriptures before us, we'll leave it alone. And that way we leave it to the Lord to talk to us about money and finance when He wants to do it, not when we want to do it. But please hear this. And please understand, I'm not talking about money this morning. You're going to hear a lot about money, finances, but that's not what we're talking about. That is not the focus. You see, God is not concerned with transactions. God is concerned with transformation. That is the issue. This was like a a brick in the head Friday morning when I realized what, what it was that we were to talk about. Because I had a little argument with God. I don't want to talk about money. I don't want you to talk about money. Yeah, but the whole passage is about money, God. It's about the tithes and the heaps of money that the people brought in and the blessings and all the stuff that they gave. It's about giving and offering and tithing. That's right. Transformation, not transaction. And I believe this is why the Lord spends so much time focusing on money because it becomes a tool to go one way or the other, either to lead us away from the Lord or a tool through which, by which we can find ourselves transformed by the Spirit of the Lord. Paul said in Romans 12:2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, Richard Halverson said, Jesus Christ said more about money than any other single thing because when it comes to a person's real nature, money is of first importance. He said money is an exact index to a person's true character. All through Scripture, there is an intimate correlation between the development of a person's character and how he or she handles his or her money. Let me say this again. God is not concerned with financial transactions. God is concerned with faithful transformation. Faithful transformation, however, always affects and alters our financial transgressions. You cannot have one without the other. One is going to influence the other. So we should expect the transformed church of Jesus Christ in the world to be a dynamic source of giving if we truly have been transformed. We should expect this church to be free from the love of or concern for money. And and to be concerned primarily with seeking first the kingdom and His righteousness. That should be the hallmark of the church in this world. Is that what we see? And if not, why not? It's because we have effectively separated faith from finance. We say, no, these are two separate things. This is a worldly thing. You know, ungodly mammon. I think that's what Jesus called it. And and there's my faith. So finances over here, faith is over here, and neither the twain shall meet. We say, Lord, take all of me, but leave my money out of it. Some transformation needs to take place in our hearts, in the church. America in general 
is in a measurable and dramatic 40-year decline of charitable giving. Even allowing for the donations following 9-11 and Katrina, we are still in a decline of giving as compared to 40 years ago. In fact, go back 70 years. Plus, ourselves down in the midst of the Great Depression, 1938. At the height of the Great Depression, the average per capita giving in the United States was 4% per household. Now, that was average. You might say, well, that's not very much. Hey, it was the Depression. 4% a household. Today, according to the Barna Research Group, though income and wealth has increased over 500%, the per capita giving in the United States has actually declined. In the general population, it's 1%. Actually, it's less than 1%. It's not even 1%. Among Roman Catholics, giving is 1.5%. Among mainline Protestants, it's 2.8%. Among evangelical Christians, it's barely 4%. Evangelicals today are not even giving or are barely giving what the average American gave in the Depression. That's a picture, a snapshot of, of our hearts, gang. Of the heart of the church today. What are we missing? And where, when you see these statistics, is the transformation of our lives in this culture? That which truly sets the church, followers of Jesus Christ, apart, makes us different and unique. Randy Alcorn said large segments of modern evangelicalism have succumbed to the heresy, listen to this, that this present life may be lived selfishly and disobediently without serious effect on the eternal state. And he says, never have so many Christians believed that our money and possessions are ours to do with as we please. Now in Second Chronicles, we find ourselves in the midst of the fourth of five great revivals in Judah. Five times, though this, this kingdom tends toward this downward plunge that gets steeper and steeper as it goes, there are five times when the, the people lift up their heads, where the king calls them out, and where they are revived throughout the land, and they, and they pray to the Lord, and He hears their prayer, and He heals their land. Five times. This is number four, and it's the greatest of all of them. And it's under King Hezekiah. An amazing, great revival. Now, we've talked a lot about revival in 2 Chronicles. What's interesting is this book of 2 Chronicles is a book of revival. That's what it's about. That is the key word, and I shared that with you all before. It surprised me. I had no idea that's what we'd be getting into, is revival talk. And what we've seen as we've studied through this is several different aspects or, or pictures of revival. Quiet was one of those. Maybe unexpected to you, it was to me. Quiet. A revival brings peace and quiet throughout the land. A peaceful return. We've seen that revivals are about a faithful return to the Lord. A biblical return to the Lord. A worshipful return to the Lord. But this morning we find out something stunning. That a revival also indicates, involves a financial return. Financial return. Let me put it this way. If the Lord doesn't have control of your finances, the transformation is not complete. For us to truly be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, children of the Father, everything, even our finances, must be His to do with as He pleases. Well, Hezekiah brings about a great revival, but it didn't happen all at once. First, he reopened the doors of the temple. You remember his father. Some of you remember Ahaz. 
closed the door of the temples. His father, Yotam, before him, wouldn't go to temple. And his father, Uzziah, before him, went to temple and got leprosy. You remember that? We talked about it last week. Went into the temple, offered up prayers, immediately got leprosy. So his son said, I'm not going to temple. He's a good, faithful king, Yotham was, but he's not going to temple. So his son Ahaz was one of the most wicked kings in all of Israel, and he shut the doors. First thing out the gate, Hezekiah does. In 2 Chronicles 29.3, he opens the doors of the temple. He removes all the idols, then in 2 Chronicles 29, from Jerusalem. He reconsecrates the priests and the people. He restores the Passover. That's a great story in chapter 30 where he invites not only all of Judah, but all of Israel to come back together, first time in 200 years, to celebrate Passover there in Jerusalem. And then the people, as we read in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 31, they they remove all the idols from the land, and finally, after all this, he returns the people to the tithe, because Psalm 110 verse 3 tells us, your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. Man, when God is moving... People see that, they get caught up in the excitement, and and they will give and do anything for the Lord. One of the things volunteered here, quite bluntly, is money. But again, we're not talking about money today. In case you're squirming in your seat, we're talking about transformation. I want to give you a couple of things, maybe three, four things to jot down about transformation today. Number one is this. Transformation comes through continuation. Transformation comes through continuation. Transformation is not an instantaneous, sudden, or immediate thing. It is a process. Now some will say, well Rick, I came to a transformed life, a life-changing faith in Jesus Christ overnight. Bam, it just happened. Hey, great, some do. But it's not over there. Now Hezekiah's revival started suddenly. In fact, we're told back in chapter 29, verse 36... Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced over what God had prepared for the people because the thing came about suddenly. And it did. This passion, this spirit of revival, boom, it hit overnight. And Hezekiah immediately starts these reforms and the people start getting drawn into it. And it happened very suddenly. And they were very excited. But it took time to get to this point where money was dealt with. Because transformation comes by continuation. Now, now it's just like this with Jesus. By the way, I mentioned this on Wednesday night. The suddenness of salvation is a wonderful thing. What takes us years to mess up and close down, Jesus cleanses and reopens in a heartbeat. You can spend 40, 50 years of your life messing it up. Come to Jesus and overnight be saved and cleansed before the Father and even be called righteous because the blood of Christ covers you. And it's a sudden thing and an instantaneous thing. But then you find yourself... Drawing back to some of those old temptations. You see yourself when you stand in front of that mirror doing some of the same stupid things you did before you came to Christ. And some people will say, why? They gave my life to Jesus. I had that wonderful night of worship and prayer and praise. I woke the next morning alive and new and fresh in Christ. And then the very next week, I shouted at my spouse sinfully. As I've done before. Or I found myself in the bar again. Or I was out with friends seeing things, doing things I shouldn't. And I'm thinking, why? I had this sudden change, but it didn't stick. Yes, it did. I would say to you, brothers and sisters, your salvation was still intact, but you were in process. 
The process of transformation that takes time and perseverance to be developed into the character after the nature of Jesus Christ. Salvation is a sudden thing. Transformation takes a lifetime. O Lord God of hosts, Psalm 80.19, restore us. Cause Your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. So there was a suddenness to Hezekiah's revival. An instantaneousness about it. But now we see it took time and perseverance for the reforms under Hezekiah to sink in and to begin to take hold. It says, now when all this was finished, verse 1, that is all of the other things going on, the cleaning of the temple, opening the doors, bringing the people back for Passover, spreading out and removing the idols throughout the land. Now now when all this was finished, all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah, broken the pillars in pieces, cut down the Asherim, pulled down the high places and the altars throughout all Judah and Benjamin. And note, as well as in Ephraim and Manasseh, that means Israel too, not just Judah. This is the broadest, broadest revival in the whole history of, of the land of the kings. Until they had destroyed them all, and then all the sons of Israel returned to their cities and each to his possession. And Hezekiah appointed the divisions of the priests and Levites by their division, according to his service, priests and Levites, for burnt offerings, peace offerings, to minister and give thanks and praise in the gates of the camp of the Lord. Now, I could use the opening of verse 1 as a verse for my own life. Now, when all this was finished, when Jesus had saved me for eternity, now when all this was finished, the transformation got underway. That's when the changes begin to happen and they take time and perseverance. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere or continue in those things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Like I said before, salvation is immediate, sudden, instantaneous. Transformation is a process and will take a lifetime. That's good news. That's real good news. Now, it's not license for me to continue in sin. It's not an excuse. Oh, well, I'm in process. That's why I got smashed last night. I'm in process, man. Praise the Lord. That's not how it works. 2 Timothy 3.13, Paul said, Evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse. They're in process. In fact, you're in process one way or the other. You're either proceeding from bad to worse or you're proceeding from saved to sanctified. And isn't that what we want to be? Sanctified in Jesus? You, however, Paul says to Timothy, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. Timothy was a church kid. He grew up with it. His mother and his grandmother, Eunice and Lois, came together and they raised this boy in the Word. And now Paul is not saying, hey, you had that when you were a kid. Let that go. Move on to other things. He's saying, continue. Stick with it, Tim. Stay in it. He said before, as you do so, you ensure that salvation that is yours and the salvation of others around you. Continue in what you have learned. I first learned what tithing meant when I was a kid. Four, five, six years old. I learned the word tithe meant 10%. It is a literal financial word. 10%. 
And I remember looking at my dollar allowance and going, 10 cents of my dollar? I don't think I need to do that. I learned about it when I was a child. I was 30 years old when God tapped me on the shoulder. (laughs) You see, I was in the process at that time. I was praying a specific prayer. And I remember this, and I don't know if I've shared this before. I may have, but I was journaling at the time. And and I was writing down, and I was just asking God to, to... Get this stuff out of my life and, and really to transform me. And, and what is it that was, that was standing between me being more of who He wanted me to be and, and where I was? And I said, Lord, transform me by the renewing of my mind. Romans 12.2, that scripture was kind of a key for me and I had no idea what I was asking. As the Lord tapped me and He said, Okay, son, you want to be transformed? We've got to look at the books. Anyway, you, you open up your books and I'll open up mine. And let's deal with this. Let's talk about faith and finance. I was 30 years old. I knew about tithing. I knew about giving and offering and that whole thing. I understood that there was something that was talked about in Scripture about that. But I didn't want to deal with it. Even when I was 30 and had that conversation with the Lord, it took five more years before I was willing to start trusting Him a little more financially with my giving. I've told you before, I was a pastor for 10 years before this happened. And I didn't give to the church I served in. I thought it was kind of ridiculous. Why would I give to the church when it's just coming back to my salary anyway? We'll just call it even. (laughs) I didn't know what it was about. But even when that hit, again, at five more, because it's a process... Because transformation takes time. There was so much I didn't understand and needed to. And there was an instance of my heart needing to be changed. Gain transformation into the character of Jesus Christ in your life will absolutely involve money. Unless you put it off. But if you're putting it off, transformation is not being completed in you. I'm just telling you spiritually. I'm not talking about money here. But transformation. You cannot get around this. If you want to be transformed into the character of Christ, you've got to open the books. Your books and His. Martin Luther said there are three conversions necessary in a person's life. He said the conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the purse. How do I begin a Christ-like transformation, especially where money is concerned? That was a big question I had. How do I start down this road? Because I opened the books. And I said to the Lord and to my wife, we cannot afford 10%. We can't even afford 5%. I'm barely paying Compassion International for the you know 25 bucks or whatever it was a month. I can't do this. How do I step forward in really trusting God with my financial situation? I'll tell you how. You begin by opening up a dialogue because transformation is a process. You begin by talking to the Lord about it. Some of you are in that place this morning. Let me just be brutally honest with you. Some of you don't give to church. I know that. You know that. God knows that. Everybody knows. (laughs) Well, maybe not everybody, but you know this. okay? And you're sitting in that place and the reason you don't want to deal with it is because guilt, I guess, or embarrassment, or there's just no way I can start giving. On my fixed income, on my limited amount of money, I can't, I just, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't. Great, don't. Huh? Don't. But would you do yourself 
a favor? Open up a dialogue with the Lord about it? Don't ignore it. Pray about it. Say, Lord, teach me to be a minister of Your blessing. Lord, if this is true, if what Pastor Rick is saying, and I'm not sure it's true or not, because I don't always trust what he says, but if it is, show me how. Show me how, Lord, because I can't see how right now. Teach me to be a minister of your blessings, not a miser of your blessings. Oh, Rick, that's kind of kind of harsh. I don't mean it to be. We gotta get back to a position of understanding who owns it all in the first place. I'll come back to that in a minute. The Spirit of the Lord Gang is engaged in a lifelong process. All I'm asking you to do today is allow him to transform you by taking this issue to him. By praying about it with Him. It could be five or ten more years, but if you're giving it over to Him, I guarantee you, I absolutely guarantee you, He will show you how to trust your money and your finances to Him. He'll show you how to do it, and He'll show you exactly what He wants to do and how He wants you to step out at the appropriate time. Transformation comes by continuation. It's a process. Verse 3. Hezekiah also appointed the king's portion of his goods for the burnt offerings, namely the morning and the evening offerings, and the burnt offerings for Sabbaths, new moons, fixed festivals, as is written in the law of the Lord. And he commanded the people who live in Jerusalem, now watch this, to give the portion due to the priests and the Levites, that they might devote themselves to the law of the Lord. Transformation number two produces devotion. It produces devotion that they might devote themselves to the law of the Lord. As Hezekiah himself was transformed, guess what? He devoted more. More of what he had, he ended up giving to the Lord because he was being transformed as well. But also, Hezekiah understood the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law provided fully for the priests and Levites so they could be fully devoted to the things of the Lord. So Rick, you're saying that we should give so that you can take home a salary. No, but I guess that's implied, isn't it? (laughs) I'm not asking for that for me. I am supported by this church. In case you didn't know that, I I had someone just last week. And every now and then this question is asked and it kind of just makes me laugh to myself. What do you do? (laughs) What do you mean? No, I mean, well, aside from Sunday and Wednesday, you know, I, I know you do, but what do you, what's your job? <laughs> you know, how do you make money? Well, I, this, this is my job. <laughs> Why, well, apparently it's not enough for you. I don't know. <laughs> I was in youth ministry sitting in a Taco Bell with a teenager, and she looked at me and she goes, so, so you're a youth minister, that's cool. Um, how do you get money? You know, what, what do you do for a living? I deal with you brats is what I told her. (laughs) But here's what I'm saying, gang. Listen, this applies to us today, not as law, but as part of the transformational work of the Spirit as we become a more devoted fellowship. Part of the reason for the tithes and the offerings as commanded in Scripture, especially related to a local church, is to take business off the table so ministry can take place. Do you realize, and a friend of mine said this really well several years ago, Rick, you have the opportunity, you have the time, because this is your job, to study the Word and to bring it in in, in ways that we don't have the time to study it like that. And that's true. That's absolutely true. So that's what I do. 
Less has the time afforded to him by his position as a pastor in this church to be out and among people constantly praying and following up and caring. A lot of us have you know, the 8-hour a day jobs, the 10-hour a day jobs. We're, we're busy at work and we can't get out and get to the hospital when someone's there. We can't be sitting home studying the Word for 8-9 hours a day because, man, we just we got to work. we got to provide. And so the Lord provides for people to minister in His fellowship. In this way. To take business off the table so ministry can take place. An uproar broke out in the early church over whose job it was to take care of the widows. Specifically, there were Greek widows and there were Hebrew widows. They were all Christians together, the Hellenistic Jews, Greek Jews, and the true you know, Jews. And so they're arguing back and forth about who's going to take care of them. And they bring it to the apostles. And Peter said, well, it says the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples. And they said, it's not desirable. Now listen to this language here. It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Well, how bombastic and arrogant of you, Peter. Oh, so we get to serve tables. You're just going to sit over there and study the Bible. <laughs> That's not fair. Peter's heart was dead on. He was right on in what he said. Gang, there's nothing wrong with waiting tables. Except that it took time away from something else that was more important for the apostles to be doing. And that is what Peter called, well, let me let him tell you. He said, Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. You see what's needed to wait tables? A person who's full of the Spirit and wisdom, not just a strong back. Whom we may put in charge of the task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. That was the primary focus of the apostles. Prayer and the ministry of the Word. That's what they were to be about. Why? Because it blessed the fellowship. Because it brought about a transformation of the entire fellowship. Transformational giving frees up the spread of the gospel through the ministry of the Word and prayer, while developing devotion in the heart of the individual and in the heart of the fellowship. So that is why we give. That's a very practical and tangible reason why we give to church. So that ministry can continue. So that we as a fellowship can be transformed and built up. And so the gospel can get out. Okay, but but back to me, Rick. Um, What if I tithe and I can't pay my bills? What if I'm sitting there looking at my bills and and I I cannot make payments? I'm going to go out on a limb here. A biblical limb. And I'm going to tell you something. And try it. It will not happen. It won't happen. If you start tithing, it won't happen. You will pay your bills. You may not pay some of the stupid ones. (laughs) I'm not even going to hedge it. Gang, I'm so convinced about this that if you will trust the Lord faithfully with your finances, He will provide in ways that you cannot imagine. And He has done so many times for me I can't even count it. I could give you story after story after story. In fact, it was funny. I was sitting there in the, in the finance conference um, on Thursday, and the first guy to get up and speak was talking about all these miraculous gifts of, of, of finance and money that had come to his church. And people were ooing and aahing and, and were impressed and, and amazed. And, and I sat there going, I, I was not impressed. Because I've seen it over and over. We started with 20 people in the Gilmore's living room in October of 2003. January of 2004, I went full-time as a pastor for, at that point, 40 or 50 people. Full-time. I've never missed a paycheck. I've been taken care of the whole time. 
I could go back further than that. I won't take the time to do it this morning. But God says this, His word, not mine. Malachi 3.10 Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this. Says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. And I won't kid you, there have been times in my life where I've said, Lord, I really need you to crack the window. I need a little help here. Where I look down and I see what I owe and I go, oh, I'm not sure how this is going to happen. But where I'm about to write the check to give to the fellowship. And, I, and, and it happens. It, it happened as recently as a month ago. I'm about to write the check and what goes through my head is, I could really use this. <laughs> this, this month, Lord. It would be great if I could just hang on to this because i got other things I could do with it. And it's the same voice that says, okay, do you trust me? Yeah, I trust you. I'm, all, I'm not always cheerful about it, but yes, I trust you, Lord. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, he says. Well, Rick, that's Old Testament. And that's law. And we're under grace. You know what? The moment we start arguing finances with God, we are denying transformation. That's the real issue. We could argue all day long whether it's 10%, 8%, 9%, or 27%, and it doesn't matter. When we start to argue about money such that we can keep more ourselves, we are denying ourselves transformation. In churches today, one-third, this is just averages, one-third of people in church today give nothing at all. One-third give less than $500 in a year. One-third give more than $500. And we wonder why the church is not transforming the world. Why are we not seeing the dramatic changes we saw in the first century? Maybe there's something we've missed here. But again, I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about transformation. The Lord is looking <clears throat> for devoted followers. But the question is, what are we devoted to? Jesus said in Matthew 6.21, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let me give you some does God care statements. Wes Wilmer of the ECFA said these on Thursday. I thought these were interesting. He said, does God care that the billions of dollars we spend each year on chewing gum and breath fresheners could eradicate world hunger? Does God care that the average American loses more on gambling than he or she gives to charity? Does God care that we spend more money on soft drinks and makeup than we do on God's work? Does God care that we define our value? And this is the one that should upset you the most. It upset me. Does God care that we define our value as human beings more by what we have than by our relationship with Jesus Christ? Are we continually being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ? Are we growing transformed into devotion? Number three. Number three, and here's, I think, the problem. Transformation is impeded by obligation. Transformation is impeded by obligation. Verse five. As soon as the order spread, the sons of Israel provided in abundance the first fruits of grain, new wine, oil, honey, and all the produce of the field. They brought in abundantly the tithe of all. The sons of Israel and Judah who lived in the cities of Judah also brought in the tithe of oxen and sheep, the tithe of sacred gifts which were consecrated to the Lord their God, and placed them in heaps. Then the third month they began to make the heaps and finish them by the seventh month. When Hezekiah and the rulers came and saw the heaps, they blessed the Lord and his people Israel. And then Hezekiah questioned the priests and the Levites concerning the heaps. 
In other words, he says, how can we have so much left over? Why is it just piling up around here? And Azariah, the chief priest of the house of Zadok, said to him, since the contributions began to be brought into the house of the Lord, we have had enough to eat with plenty left over, for the Lord has blessed His people, and this great quantity is left over. These people were not obliged to give. They were transformed to give. They were not doing it because they felt like, oh, okay, got to uh, bring it, yeah, all right. Pastor's really riding us this week. Hezekiah is on our backs. We better bring the tithe. It is law, after all. No. They were transformed. They were ignited. They were excited about what was going on. Now, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9-7, Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver, which is part of the reason why I shared with you, if you're struggling with this, don't give this morning. Pray. Because the issue is not money in the box. The issue is a heart transformed and changed and altered and more Christ-like. But a big part of the problem, I believe, in the church today, the very atmosphere of giving in our churches has become obligatory as opposed to transformational. we got a building project coming up. got to do it. We're expanding. We need money. Missions is short on funds. Oh, the budget is running short. Let's have a finance giving sermon today. And it misses the whole point of why we're called to give. It's not so the church can survive. It's not because we're obliged to do so. Gang, I I fear in the church that we've moved from belief to the bottom line. Instead of faith, we're focused now on fundraising. Another ECFA quote, Today's fundraising professionals are better informed, better prepared, and better trained in secular techniques of raising money than ever before. However, generosity is not increasing per capita among Christians. Which should tell us something. Secular fundraising techniques don't work. That is not what transforms and ignites a church. It is not what changes lives. And tragically, U.S. News and World Report said there is distinctive, that their distinctive faith aside, evangelicals are acting more and more like the rest of us. We had a, a conversation come up, one of the last seminars Jeff and I were in on, on Thursday. It was more of a, of a feedback seminar, ECFA, trying to find out how they can um, support and encourage and help out churches rather than just Christian businesses, which has been their forte in the past. And we're talking about things, and one of the things that, that came up, uh, people began to ask the question about how do we handle gifts that are, are ascribed to certain things. You know, if this, this is for the building fund, and this, someone will write on their check, this is designated for the youth ministry, and this is designated for this, that, or the other. And, and I raised my hand and said, we don't do designated giving at the bridge. People kind of looked at us. What do you mean you don't do designated giving? We just don't. We tell people, put your money in the box. And don't determine where it goes. And someone challenged us on that. Well, so you're saying all the control is with the shepherds instead of with the people. That's not why we do it. In fact, I want you to hear me clearly. We have tried, in our human frailty, we have tried to implement standards, financial standards, that place the priority on faith. And if you are jotting down something in the memo line of where you want your money to go, you're not given in faith. Now, if you've done that, I'm not questioning your faith. Okay, please understand. But the reason we don't allow that kind of giving at the bridge, the reason why you can't say, hey, John's in charge of youth ministry, and I know they could use a new van. I'm going to write him a check. Uh Uh-uh. Because you now are controlling the finances and not the Lord. Now, 
Let me just add to this a little caveat. If you see something of great need in the fellowship, if you know a place where some money can go, let me know. And please don't withhold that information. Tell Les or one of our shepherds, say, hey, I heard there's a family over here that's really in need. Just wanted to make you aware of that in case you weren't. Or, boy, it seems like as a fellowship we could really use blah. Or, John really could use a van. That would be great. You know, Tell us. And we then turn around and entrust it to the Lord in prayer. Lord, is this what you want us to do with this? But as far as giving those goes, it is a, a, a faith priority. I don't want anybody here giving out of obligation. Because obligation impedes transformation. We are called, gang, to this, this whole concept of giving. To give out of a changed nature. A transformed heart. So in case, in case I haven't been clear enough yet, let me tell you exactly how we are going to focus our upcoming building project on Troxel Road. Oh, I knew it was going to go there sometime today, Rick. <laughs> let me tell you what we're going to do. Here's my strategy. For fundraising and bringing in the cash that we, you know, this building could be anywhere from 1.5 to 2.5 million just because, who knows, you know, that's, that's construction. How are we going to raise $2.5 million? Here's what we're going to do. <clears throat> Number one, tonight at 5 o'clock we're having a first fruits prayer and worship time. I invite you to come to that. Are you going to talk about money? No. What's that got to do with anything? We're going to trust the Lord. We're going to worship together. We're going to pray together in this place. We're going to call on the Lord to move us forward how He wants to do it. That's the first strategy. Here's the second strategy. We're going to encourage more fellowship this fall through small group involvement and greater care throughout the body. Things like the teeth for three, which I think is a fantastic idea for our women. And we've got to come up something, with something for men. I said s'mores for four maybe last week or, I don't know, something manly. Because no three guys are going to get together to sip tea. Okay? <laughs> Just ain't going to happen, you know. So I'll be thinking about that. But some things where we can get the guys doing the same thing. But it's just women who don't even know each other getting hooked up in little groups of three. Here's the email address. Here's the phone number. Call. Get in contact over the next two, three weeks and, and have tea together. Meet together. Get to know each other. I love that. What a great idea. Greater care throughout the body here in the bridge. We are going to encourage and see provided more opportunities for men, women, youth, children to grow in the Word and by the Spirit of God. That's our third strategy. Fourth strategy. We're seriously, and listen to me on this. It's going to sound nuts to you. We're seriously praying about not only avoiding all fundraising and capital gift campaigning whatsoever, just not doing it at all, but we're praying about paying as we go in faith and not even getting a bank loan. Oh, so so you've got some money saved up in the bank, not even close to what we need. In fact, we don't even have enough money in the bank right now to get a loan. (laughs) <laughs> so, so that should tell you where we're at with this to go forward and to see a, a building built over on Troxel without any loan at all that's what we're praying about and, and I, I'm asking you to pray with us because at our next shepherd's meeting we're going to make a final decision about that we almost did it the last meeting we said no let's take two more weeks and pray about it and say Lord do you really want us to go loan free just, just, to, just to build this building as we can even if it takes 27 years. <laughs> if that's what you want. Do you want us to avoid that kind of getting in debt to build a building? Rick, that sounds impossible. Yeah, it does. But uh, let me tell you what really is impossible. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Luke 18.27 
Jesus said the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. And by the way, the context of him saying that is after the rich young man walked away and he had just said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the apostle said, who can be saved then? And Jesus said, oh man, that would be impossible with people but not with God. Because all things are possible with God. Who can be saved? No one can without transformation. But this is the process we are heading into this year. And I am very excited. I am banking on transformation. I'm banking on transformation to be what really happens in this fellowship. Above and even beyond building a building. Transformation. A changed heart. Now, gang, let me say this. This is a wonderful church. I love being here. I love knowing and getting to know all of you. And there's so many that I need to get to know. A lot of new faces over the last few months. And it is a wonderful place to be. But God is not finished with the bridge. And He is working on transformation. 2 Corinthians 9.11 Paul says, You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which is not political, by the way. It's financial. (laughs) You'll be enriched for liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Heaps of blessing. Heaps of blessing. Why were there heaps and leftovers? Because the people were not obliged to give. They were transformed to give. But if we give out of obligation, we're not going to see heaps. We might just barely make our bottom line. But we won't see heaps of blessing. So as you think about and pray about this, I invite you, don't give out of obligation. Only give if the Lord is transforming you to do so. Instead of heaps of blessing, if we do the obligation route, we're going to have scraps of guilt offerings. And I don't think the Lord needs that. Judah had heaps of blessing because they were overflowing with thanksgiving. Now I've got just one more thing to tell you, and I think it may be the most important thing of all here. Number four, transformation develops administration. Transformation develops administration. That doesn't sound very spiritual, Rick. Oh, it is. Verse 11 says, Then Hezekiah commanded them to prepare rooms in the house of the Lord, and they prepared them. They faithfully brought in the contributions and the tithes and the consecrated things, and Conaniah, the Levite, <coughs> Conaniah, the barbarianiah, <laughs> sorry, was the officer in charge of them, and his brother Shimei was second. Okay, what's this saying? Well, if you read on down, verses 13 through 15, you get names of the administration of all the gifts and the tithes and the offerings. People who administrated the heaps of blessings. They took care of it. They made sure it went where it needed to go. You know, those who needed their their salary of the the Levites and the priests, they got theirs. And and what needed to go into the storehouses of the Lord and, and consecrated things to the Lord, everything was placed where it needed to be. These were all the people in these verses who were in charge of administrating the gift. This transformed, revived people had given so much that it was just piling up in heaps. And Hezekiah said, let's get organized and let's administrate these gifts. Let's manage the overflow. Listen to me. Whatever your income level is, you need to understand you are an administrator of the gifts that God has given. You're a manager. You are a steward. And this is the mentality 
we had it at least somewhat culturally a hundred years ago, we have lost it. It's a mentality we as Christians need to return to. Our culture progressed from a stewardship mentality to a philanthropist mentality and finally to a self-centered mentality. How does that work, Rick? Well, the self-centered mentality says, this is my money to keep. It's my money. I worked hard for it. I earned it. It's my money. The philanthropist says, this is my money to give. It's my money. But I'm going to bless this group or this organization or this person with it. It's a a kindness thing. But it's my money to give. The steward says, this is God's money to give. This is God's money to give. And when we begin to think as stewards, gang, the offerings pile up in heaps. Because it's not even ours. You've heard me say before, tithing is not about you giving 10% of your money. It's about God allowing you to keep 90% of His. What a gracious God. Psalm 50 verse 12, the Lord says, The world is mine and all it contains. Which means this chair in the front row, uh, five in, is His chair. (laughs) Because it's in the world and all the world contains belongs to God. Philippians 4.19, Paul says, My God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Really? Yes. That is a radical transformation of the mind when we begin to think like stewards. Hey, we're just managers of what we've got. So if I have a salary of 100 bucks a week, I manage that because that's what God determined at this point in my life that I am to have. If I have a salary of $4,000 every two weeks, that's what God gave me to manage. But it is His. How am I doing as a steward of the Lord God? That is a transformed mind. That is transformational thinking. The steward is not an owner. The steward is not a producer. He's a manager, administrator, someone who gives out of what has been given to him or her. The steward looks at the checkbook and says, this doesn't belong to me. The steward looks at Every dime that's given says, it's not mine. Thank you, Lord, for the blessing. How do you want me to administrate it now? Transformation. Seen in administration. Hezekiah got this. He he recognized, gang, that the kingdom and the people were not his. It is an amazing thing he did back in chapter 30. Amazing. After this revival breaks loose in Judah, what does he do? He invites Israel, their enemies. Yeah, they were brothers, but they fought constantly civil war. This would be like in the height of the civil war for the south to invite the north or vice versa to come together for a religious celebration. What? You wouldn't do that. Hezekiah did. He invited all Israel to come down and share Passover with the people of Judah. Why would he do that? Because Hezekiah understood the kingdom was not his. He was a steward of what belonged to God and all Israel belonged to God. Which is why we see down in verse 20, Hezekiah did throughout all Judah and did what was good, right, and true before the Lord his God. Every work which he began in the service of the house of God in the law and in commandment, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. And that's not prosperity gospel. The prosperousness of Hezekiah and of Judah during his reign was because people were transformed. And they just couldn't stop giving. Philippians 3.20, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven. 
from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Because He is the Master and I am just one of the many stewards. How are we going to administrate the gifts of God? Will we at the Bridge Fellowship see heaps of blessing because we have become stewards, not philanthropists, not self-centered? That's the issue. And I invite you to join me and let's pray about it right now. Oh Lord, both for this hour and for next, I plead with you, I beg you, that the understanding of what we've talked about would be transformation, not transaction. Now people wouldn't go out feeling guilty because of where they happen to be with you in their giving. That this is not about that. That would be obligation. We don't want to go there, Lord. And I'm not sure how to, how to avoid that other than to say, Holy Spirit, You've got to speak words of transformation into our hearts. You've got to convict us. You've got to change us and model us after the generosity of our Father. Who, by the way, we say, Thank You, Lord, for Your indescribable gift. Lord, I'm praying over this fellowship, all of us, myself included, that You will impact even how we view money. That You will alter and transform us into stewards so, Jesus, when You come, we can just turn around and say that this is what we invested, this, this, is, this is what was gained, and hand it back to You. Change us, transform us, make us like You, Jesus. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I got one more thing I have to share with you. And so I, I just I beg you to give me a couple more minutes. But I wanted to share with you, and this came up after I had already finished studying and everything, but an article was sent to me by Paul Schwulst that he picked up from ChristianPost.com, and it caught my attention. Let me just share this with you and and we'll let you get out of here for today. For years a war was raging inside him, but outwardly the Christian author sat in church and pretended all was well. Now he is ready to reveal his secret. He doesn't want to go to church anymore. At the mature age of 65, Dr. Larry Crabb, some of you may have his books or have heard of him, Dr. Larry Crabb, who has gone to church his entire life, admits he'd rather go to his favorite local coffee shop and read a newspaper than go to church on Sundays. But perhaps more shocking than the Christian leader's confession is that he believes he's not alone and that many of his peers feel the same way. I think it is rather a widespread thing among people in my generation, said Crabb to the Christian Post in an interview. It's not just that people his age, the psychologist explained, are not comfortable enough or maybe not open enough to share about their dislike of going to church. In the past year, Crabb said he shared his problem with going, to, with going to church to 40 to 50 peers and not one person has said, My gosh, what is your problem? I love the church. The people more favorable to church say they go because they suppose it is a good thing. Obligation. It's obligation. But they don't think it is doing for them what it should. Self-centered. On the other end of the spectrum, people respond by describing church as 
boring or saying they're indifferent about attending service. Crabb writes in his latest book, Real Church Does Exist, Can I Find It? Quote, Church as I know it usually leaves deep parts of me dormant, unawakened, and untouched. Maybe it's familiarity, the predictability of pattern and content that I find boring, superficially exciting at best, where emotions sometimes get stirred and that get unstirred by the time I reach my car. (laughs) The book comes out of his effort to write his way through his disappointment, frustration, and concern with church, with the hope that in the end he will know what kind of church God envisioned and the kind of church he wants to be part of. Crabb emphasized that while he's hungry for spiritual formation, most churches just focus on solving particular social or emotional problems rather than members' spiritual problems. He described many churches as self-help clubs. I think you know how I feel about that. Through the chapters of his new book, Crabb discusses the different reasons people go to church and why he should go to church. Then he describes four characteristics that he believes the real church would have. Now this is Larry Crabb, this is not scripture, but here's what he thinks. A real church would be immersed in the Bible, whether it's through the pastor's sermon, Sunday school, or small group discussion, Crabb said. It would also teach its members that they are designed to be the greatest lovers of all time because they are formed in the image of Jesus Christ who is able to love his enemies even as he was being nailed to the cross. Third, the real church would have an authentic community where someone would feel completely comfortable admitting to others they are not doing well in their faith. And number four, lastly, an authentic church would be occupied with spiritual mission. Such as the desire to help the homeless and feed the hungry to represent Jesus to the world. And then he says, I hope that people get away from the idea that God is a genie, that you rub a lamp and call it a prayer and you get everything you want. This is not how it works at all, Crabb said in the interview. I just hope that people would see this as an incredible privilege that there is a vision for the church that is so high and lofty that it is only possible through people who are fully dedicated to Jesus Christ. Hopefully we will get people moving in that direction. And I read that and I thought, wow, that's it. The problem in the church today, it is not answered by faster and louder songs. It is not answered by trying to play music that sounds like what we hear on the radio. It is not dancing in the aisles or bigger or better services on a weekly basis. Aren't you just tired of that? I got tired. I tell you what, when we started the bridge, I was tired of that. I worked in a 2,500 member church in Southern California. Great church, loving people, fantastic teaching. Everything was great there, but it was program centered. And as a youth pastor, it burned me week in and week out to try and come up with something that was bigger and better than what we had done before. And I got tired of that. You know what else I get tired of? Spiritual buzz. I get sick and tired of hearing about the latest buzz happening here or going on over here. Oh, you really ought to see what's happening there. Look, what is God doing here? And let's ask the Lord, transform our lives here because most of us are not going to have the money to hop in an airplane and go there. So Lord, what are you doing right here among us? How are you transforming us? Because that is the answer. A transformed life by the Spirit of power in Jesus Christ. That is what makes church exciting. And by the way, it's not what makes church exciting. Let's put it this way. That's what makes being the church exciting. Because what happened here this morning even is not church. And this is where I disagree with Crab. You didn't come to church this morning. This is not church. This is a service where we study the Word and worship God and share communion together. But church is what happens when you walk out the door. 
It's who you spend time with of, of faith throughout the week. It is the growth and sharing of transformation. And that's what we're looking for. And we need to understand that. And I'll finish with this. And it has everything to do with your money. The Lord told me several years ago, He, he put it in these words, it's the last stronghold. Money is the last stronghold. And most of us as believers, we can go an awfully long way with Jesus, but we hit the wall when finances come up and we can't get over it. And we wonder, why are we not growing in our faith? Why are more fantastic things not happening in my life? Why am I not experiencing Jesus more intimately? You hit the wall. You want to get over that wall? You want to bust right through it? Open your books. Give it to the Lord.